Well, in that previous lesson entitled, Oh Brother, we learned that as Jacob had left Uncle Laban up there at Mount Gilead and continued on his way south into the promised land, who met him? Anybody remember back in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 32? A host of God's angels met him at a place that he named Mahanaim, which means two hosts or two camps. And by the term Mahanaim, or two camps, Jacob might have been referring to his own camp, you know, his caravan of his family and his servants and his livestock, and that'd be one camp, and God's angelic camp being the second camp. That might be what he was referring to, his camp and God's angelic camp. However, there's also the possibility that the angels which he beheld were actually themselves divided into two camps or two companies, two hosts. One host of angels may have been positioned behind Jacob, and the other host of angels might have been positioned in front of him, before him. They very well may have been God's provision for Jacob's encounters with his two adversaries. One adversary named Laban, you see, was now behind Jacob. And it really was incredible that he had retreated from Jacob without anyone lifting a hand against anyone else. Esau of course, was Jacob's other adversary, and he was yet before Jacob. It would be equally incredible, of course, I guess we'll have to wait until the fall to find this out, but it would be equally incredible that Esau also would retreat from Jacob without anyone lifting a hand against anyone else. So the angelic host were sent from God to serve Jacob as comforting assurance that the Lord God, just as he had promised, would preserve Jacob, you know, no matter where he went. If indeed the name Mahanaim refers to two hosts of angels, you know, one before Jacob and one behind Jacob, then what do you think that scene actually looks forward to or pictures remember who is Jacob a picture and type of the nation of Israel so would this not actually be a picture of the experience of Israel in her exodus from Egypt which would take place about you know some 400 years later when a pillar of cloud went before her to lead her and protect her by day and a pillar of fire protected her, her uh, rear by night. Because you know, she had one enemy in front of her, the Canaanites in the promised land, and she had another enemy behind her, right? The Egyptians. Well, following Jacob's vision of the angelic host, in verse 1 of chapter 32, he sent out messengers to relay a message to his brother. It was a message given, remember, in very humble terms, which were intended to convey to Esau the fact that Jacob had no interest whatsoever in claiming his rights of lordship over Esau, either in the material realm or in the political realm of things. Jacob, we learned, had obtained a lot of wealth, a great deal of wealth on his own while he had been up in Haran. So he really didn't need anything. He was in need of nothing. 
And he further demonstrated the truth of this by sending Esau a goodwill peace offering, we could call it, of some 580 plus animals of, you know, of his own from his own flocks. And the primary request of his message to his brother when he sent those animals ahead as peace offering and as a gift, his primary message was a plea for grace in his brother's eyes. And we saw that in verse 5. In other words, what he was really asking for was Esau's forgiveness. However, shortly after Jacob sent emissaries to deliver his message to Esau down in the land of Edom, which was where Esau was living, some 90 miles distance from where Jacob was at this time, shortly after they left, those messengers came back. And it wasn't really enough time for them to have gotten all the way to Edom. They came back too soon. And when they came back, their report was not too good. At least it didn't seem to be too good. Esau, they said, was already on his way to meet Jacob. And guess what? He wasn't alone. How many men were with him? There were 400 men with him. So this, uh, there were two things which we were, told, uh, well, we, we were told that Jacob became greatly afraid and distressed in verse 7. And the two reasons for that was the size of Esau's army and the silence of Esau's answer. So because Jacob was afraid and distressed, he took the precaution of dividing his caravan into two groups so that... If attacked, at least one group would have the chance to escape. Also then, he took his fear, and this was good. Uh, Well, the the dividing of the, the caravan, that was wise. But this was even wiser. He took his fear and his burden to the right source. To who? to the Lord. And uh, that was a very commendable thing to do. We saw that in verses 9 to 12. Jacob's prayer to the Lord was a very, very good prayer. It was very well stated and it was very sound. And we discussed the fact that it could serve us very well as a godly example of prayer in its general principles. You know. Now, the day following this prayer, He then arose and he made arrangements to send Esau a, uh, well, he hadn't actually sent the gift, but now he made the arrangements to send the very generous gift of the livestock from which God, you know, God had greatly blessed him. So he was going to abundantly send this um, gift of livestock to Esau. And we learned that five droves, we think it was probably five droves of animals, were driven forth to be presented one by one to Esau. And then the messenger shepherds, which were driving from behind, you know, they weren't in front leading the livestock, they were in the back, lead up, pushing them ahead, driving them. Each messenger was to convey to the Lord Esau that the animals were a gift from Esau's servant. So Jacob was referring to himself as a servant. He was referring to his brother as Lord. His great hope, you see, was to appease Esau with this generous sacrificial gift so that when Esau saw his face, um, he would accept him. When Jacob saw Esau's face, Esau would accept him. He would forgive him. The sending out of the gifts had taken uh, another day to accomplish. 
And then that night, as with the previous night, and this is in verse 13, it says Jacob lodged himself down for the night. So we've got a second night he's going to bed here. However, we find that he had insomnia. He was unable to sleep. He had no real confidence, you see, that his gift would pacify his brother. And this we know from his uh, words of verse 20, where he says, peradventure, which means in modern day terms, uh, perhaps he will accept me. You know, he doesn't know. It's a big maybe with a question mark in front of it. So he has no real confidence that that gift is going to pacify Esau. As far as Jacob knew, because the next, uh, because the next day he, he was to encounter Esau, and he must have known this from messengers who went out and told him just exactly how far Esau was away from him. So as far as Jacob knew, uh, this might be the very last night of his life. You remember, Esau had wanted to kill him 20 years earlier. So this could be the last night of his life. And it could be the last night of his family's life. Now, he wanted uh, to believe that that wouldn't be true. He wanted to believe that the Lord would pull through for him just as he had done with Laban. Remember the night before Laban was to arrive? And probably wouldn't have been a good outcome. The Lord had given Laban a dream and threatened him not to not to touch Jacob. So I'm sure that Jacob was hoping that the Lord again would intervene and perhaps even um, appear to Esau in a dream and also do the same thing, threaten him not to touch his brother. After all, God had made him, Jacob, some very, very special promises. And surely, you know, this is Jacob thinking, surely God is not going to fail to keep those promises promises. You know, he is going to preserve me, especially since the most important part of those promises centered on the coming promised seed of the woman, the coming savior of the world. So you see, Jacob's spirit wanted to believe, yet his flesh continued to remind him of how angry Esau had been. Do we have that battle? (laughs) The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yes, we constantly have a battle between our faith and our fears, our faith and our fears. I had that battle yesterday morning when Chris called and sounded so horrible. You know, I wanted to believe. I took a picture of him and I put it on my heart and I was walking around the house. Lord, save him. Lord, save him. Don't let him die. (laughs) But, you know, and I had faith, but there was that part of me that was really fearful. Well, furthermore, Jacob knew that in his situation with Laban, he had uh, uh, been the innocent victim. Okay? Think of Uncle Laban. Who was the innocent one, really? I mean, not totally innocent. He was reaping what he had sowed, but more or less he was innocent with Laban. He hadn't done anything particular to Laban. So it was right, he knew, that God had intervened on his behalf with, with Laban. Now, in this situation with Esau, do you think that Jacob had that particular peace of mind? No, because he had not been innocent in that situation. It was his deceit, and it was his lies, and it was his rebellion toward God, which was demonstrated by attempting to scheme to get the blessing instead of waiting on God to get it for him. It was all that which had caused Esau's murderous hatred toward him. So does guilt flame fear? It does. 
If you know you're guilty, you're more fearful. You think, "Eh, God's going to hit me with a hammer. (laughs) So guilt flamed his fear. It was going to be, therefore, a long, restless night for Jacob. Actually, as he lodged himself down for the night, he had no idea that besides being a long, restless night for him, it would also become a long, wrestling night for him. It would be a night which would not only have a lasting effect on his spiritual walk, but it would also have a lasting effect on his physical walk. So that was the introduction. Now we're going to get into the lesson. The Jabok, 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 sounds good. The Jabok wrestling match. And as you can see, we're going to look at uh, six divisions. The restless Jacob, the wrestled Jacob, the wrenched Jacob, the renamed Jacob, the renewed Jacob, and the remembered Jacob. So let's begin by looking at the restless Jacob. And under this section, I have across the Jabok and alone at the Jabok. Let's look at across the Jabok, verses 22 and 23. Chapter 32, verses 22 and 23. It says, and well, let, just look at verse 21. So went, the pre, so went the present over before him and himself lodged that night in the company. Boy, that sounds weird, doesn't it? All right, verse 22. And he rose up that night and took his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and his two women servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, and his 11 sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Means he took over everything else he had as well. It becomes obvious to us that Jacob was in a state of unrest and anxiety in spite of the presence that he had sent to Esau. Because sometime in the middle of the night, we're told that he rose up. What he did then was unusual. For nights, of course, were dark and no work was done at night, usually done at night. Yet Jacob woke up his wives and his children and he took them, it says, over the Jabbok River at a place where it was, you know, crossable. It must have been just a a stream there. And um, then he also, in addition to taking his wives and his children across, he came back and it says he took everything else that he had across, which would mean what? All of his possessions and all of his livestock. Apparently, Jacob decided that since he couldn't sleep anyway, he might as well get the business of herding all the animals across the river out of the way. He'd get that business taken care of before he met Esau the next day. He obviously, as I said before, knew from his sources that he was going to encounter Esau on that next day. Now, one thing is interesting about Jacob's move, besides the fact that he did this in the dark of night, and that is that he moved everyone and everything to the southern side of the river. Now, uh, the Jabbok River, I've got a pen here. It flows, actually flows west. It flows this way. Here's the Jabbok River. It flows into the Jordan River. And it's located about halfway, a little bit more than halfway, but between the, the, um, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. There's the Jabbok River. Now, what he did that was unusual is that he, he was on the north side, okay? And what he did, he got up in the middle of the night. Oh, that isn't even focused. Why didn't you tell me? Ooh, goodness, I forgot to focus. 
I'm sorry, nobody said a word, and you've been looking at fuzzy pictures all morning? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. He was on the north side, okay? What he did, he got up in the middle of the night, and he moved his family, and he moved all his possessions to the south side of the river. And then he himself went back to the north side. Now, what is interesting about that is that it tells us uh, that he was not going to make a retreat from Esau because where was Esau coming from? If he was going to retreat from Esau, what would he do? He'd go back this way or he'd go this way or he'd go this way or somewhere. But he put everybody, his family and all those things on this side of the river. So he was not retreating. He was going to meet his brother, you know, face to face find his action in the middle of the night was a combination of caution because he did this at night and courage because he he went to the same side or to, to put his family and all his loved ones and, and his possessions he put them on the same side as Esau so it was a combination of caution and courage and it was a mixture of fear because he could not sleep so there was obviously some element of fear and anxiety combination of fear and faith because he wasn't going to retreat from Esau so you see that combination fear and faith his action then was an indication of what was occurring within his heart he wanted to believe that the Lord would intervene to protect him but he also feared that uh, Esau would wipe them all out he wanted to rest in the Lord, but yet he was really counting on his uh, presence, you know, his gifts, and his own appeal to Esau to rescue them. So, again, it's like the struggle we have. You want to you depend on the Lord, but then you do your part too, don't you? And, you know, it's hard to get away from that self and that independence. But I don't know that that's all bad. But anyway, Jacob was wrestling with himself before he ever wrestled with anyone else that night. It's also interesting to, to discover that the word Jabek means wrestler. Did you know that? He wrestled at the wrestling river. <laughs> it means uh, wrestler. And we rather see Jacob's inner wrestling, his inner wrestling, you know, before uh, he outwardly wrestled. We see his inner wrestling going on. Um, and that's portrayed to us by his up and down movements. You know, he went to sleep and then he got up. His up and down movements in the middle of the night. And it's also seen by his back and forth movements. What do you do when you're restless? Like yesterday, when I was holding Chris's picture against my heart. It was, I wasn't standing still, I can tell you. I was walking back and forth, you know, up and down the stairs. And, and so this we see his restlessness by his movements, up and down, back and forth. He crossed over the Wrestler River at least several times. Took his wives and children over, came back, got all his livestock, took them over. And then he himself went back to the north side of the river to be by himself. So let's look, secondly, at alone at the Jabbok, verse 24, or at least the first part of verse 24, where it says, and Jacob was left alone. That's all I want to look at. Jacob was alone. And sometimes when we find ourselves alone, and at the end of our own resources, that is when God can finally get our full attention. We need, at times, to be alone. We need, at times, to be still and know that God is God, right? 
A lot of people don't like to be alone. Have you ever met anybody who doesn't like to be alone? There's a lot of people. They even fear being alone because they don't want to have to think about things that really matter. They they work very hard. I have a brother-in-law like this. He works very hard at filling his life with all kinds of distractions and noises. You know, goes to sleep with the TV running. Um, Or, you know, they have to have music constantly around them, blasting in their ears, or the radio playing, or people buzzing all about. They don't want to have to face God, and they don't want to have to face themselves. They don't want time to think about the true meaning of life and of the consequences of their sins. And, of course, they don't want to think about what? Death. They don't want to think about death. It's interesting when my mother, my mother was just telling me, she loves to be alone. She has no problem. I mean, I see her sitting there in the chair or sitting up in the bed, and she's just, I said, what are you doing? Aren't you bored? She says, I don't know what, how people can be bored. She said, no, I'm going over in my mind the wonderful life the Lord has given me. And I'm thinking about all the things I've done and all the blessings and how he was there for me even when I didn't know him and even when I was lukewarm. And uh, she said, and I think about all the wonderful places he's let me go, you know, with all her trips. And, and she said, how can anybody be bored? But a lot of people don't like to be alone with their thoughts. And they, and they don't like to, oh, I was going to tell you a story she's told me about right after she got the bad news about her condition. Um, she ran into one of the nurses. She was still in the hospital and she was walking up and down. They told her to walk every day. So she was walking up and down the hall and she saw one of the young nurses who had been with her before she had her um, surgery. And the nurse said, um, how are you doing, Mrs. Caravis? Um, what, what happened? And my mom told her. And you know what the little girl said, the little nurse? She said, well, what a great excuse to just live it up and party. Isn't that all? I know. That's, and, and that's the philosophy. She told me another story, which I didn't know. She said it just, oh. When she went, right after my dad died, she had to go and take his death certificate somewhere on the on the base because my dad was is retired was retired navy, and uh, she was one of the the men was there in uniform. I won't tell you which branch of the military he was in, but it wasn't the navy. <laughs> and uh, he he uh, said, "When did your husband die?" or something like that. And she said, "New Year's Day." And he said, "Boy, that must have been one hell of a party." Can you imagine? My mother said it was like somebody took a knife and stabbed it into her heart. But I said, well, Mom, what do you expect from the world? The the whole philosophy of the world is eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. You know? But what does God call people like that? Thou fool. Don't you know that your soul is going to be required of you? Don't you care about where you're going when you die? I mean, we're all terminal. We're terminal from the minute we are born. We're all going to die unless the Lord comes in the rapture, which I'm really counting on. But if he doesn't, we're all, we're all going to die. Don't, why don't people think about where they're going when they die? Because we don't die. We are our soul. That's us. I mean, our, all we do is shed these little shells of ours. And sometimes, we, you know, you get so you almost hate this shell, don't you? Because it gets so worn out and tired and painful and ugly. 
But we're going to continue on forever, one place or another. But a lot of people don't like to be alone. Yet, yeah, as we're going to see was true with Jacob, one, some of our greatest battles occur when we are alone. We are who we really, really are when we are alone. You know, there are no hypocrites in private, right? So for probably the first time since he had left the sheep fields of Haran, Jacob was alone. It was dark and it was quiet. And he probably was sitting or meditating about the day to come, you know, the next day. And maybe he was even praying. And it was yet a long time before the sun would rise. But Jacob knew that sleep would somehow be impossible. There was just too much struggling going on between his fear and his faith. And then suddenly, can you imagine this? Suddenly, a hand out of nowhere seized him. You know, suddenly the dark form of a man appeared from seemingly nowhere and a hand reached out and grabbed hold of him. Now you can just imagine his uh, fright. There he is alone. Who was this? I mean, had probably the first thing that would go through his mind was had Esau sent an assassin ahead, you know, to, to search him out and kill him? Or was this some wandering robber who had prayed, who preyed upon passing travelers? You know, they were, they were all over the place back in those days. Well, whoever he was, Jacob, at the age of 97 years, found himself in a one-on-one wrestling match for the remainder of this long night. So let's move now to looking at the, here we go the wrestled Jacob and for this we'll look at verse 24b after it says Jacob was left alone it says and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day okay the first issue we want to address here is the identity of the man it says the man the identity of the man who wrestled with Jacob now first we know that although he appeared in the form of a man Yet he is called an angel. In fact, according to Hosea 12.4, you may want to jot that down in the margin or even run over there and look at it yourself. But according to Hosea 12.4, he, this angel who grabbed hold of Jacob, was the angel and not just an angel. The angel speaks of the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And Hosea, the prophet Hosea, actually went on to tell us that the one referred to here as the angel who wrestled with Jacob was, quote-unquote, the Lord God of hosts. That's Hosea 12.5. So there's no doubt about this. Who was this man? Who was this angel? The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. In case there's any doubt that this is who Jacob wrestled with, we have Jacob's own words. Look over at verse 30. Because when he named the place north of Jabbok where he wrestled all night with this angel, this man angel, um, he named that place Peniel, he said, for I have seen the face of God. And of course you don't see the face of God the Father. 
you see the face of God the Son. So this was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Jacob realized that it was the Lord, when he realized it was the Lord himself, we really don't know. Um, It might have been at the rising of the daylight. You know, so he might have been wrestling with this fellow all night, not knowing until the rising of the daylight who it was when he could see the face of the one wrestling with him. It may have been when that one he was wrestling with or was wrestling with him actually touched the hollow of his thigh and instantly Jacob's hip was out of socket. Or it might have been that he knew who he was wrestling with when he had his actual conversation with the Lord. We don't really know. I think it had happened simultaneously with all three of those events, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Well, what is very interesting to take notice of in the actual wording of this event is that we are told that the man who I'm going to be referring to during the remaining of this, remainder of this study this morning as the Lord Jesus since I've already told you that's who it was. Um, We're told that the man was the one who wrestled with Jacob. Now make sure you understand this. In other words, contrary to what many teach and what you may have heard, you know, your whole life, it was not Jacob who was wrestling with the Lord in order to get something from him, from the Lord. You're going to hear, and you probably already have heard, many teach that Jacob wrestled all night with the Lord to get a blessing from him. However, the truth of the matter is that the Lord wrestled all night with Jacob in order to get something from Jacob. And that something, which we're going to talk about further, was Jacob's absolute surrender. To him. Now it's true, it is true, as we're going to read at the end of verse 26, that Jacob wanted a blessing from the Lord, but he did not wrestle the Lord all night to get it. It wasn't until morning uh, when his hip was dislocated and he could do nothing but cling to the Lord that he then begged for a blessing. You see, Jacob did not go out seeking God to wrestle him down, you know, until he promised him a blessing, until he gave him a blessing. Jacob didn't go out seeking God to wrestle with him. It was the Lord who surprised Jacob and wrestled with with him in order to bring him, Jacob, to the point of submission both physically and spiritually. In other words, it was not the wrestling match which should be used to teach the importance of prevailing prayer, as it so often is used. It is not the wrestling match for which Jacob is commended in the Scripture. You see, it was the old Jacob which wrestled all night with the Lord. It was the old Jacob, it was the old carnal nature of Jacob which kept him fighting, you know, in his own self-sufficiency. Just as it had been the old Jacob all of his life who had so desperately desired the blessings of God, but rather than clinging to God and waiting on God, you know, to do to give him the blessing in God's timing and in God's way, what had he done? Jacob had wrestled to get those blessings his way and in his on his time schedule. 
In truth, Jacob was born wrestling, wasn't he? Because he was born trying to pull his brother. He was born wrestling with his brother. They were wrestling in the womb. He was born trying to pull his brother back into their mother's womb and win the victory of the firstborn uh, for himself. You know, he was trying to do it himself. When he traded Esau a bowl of pottage for the, the birthright, he had won another wrestling match against his brother. He did not wait for God to work that situation out. And then when Jacob had deceived and lied, not only to his, well, to his father and his brother, to get the patriarchal blessing, he once again won things by wrestling for them in his own strength instead of clinging to God to get them, to, for them. Even in his dealings with Esau now, in, in our, um, context, our scripture passage, when he's about to confront him after 20 years of separation, Jacob still had a wrestling match going on within himself. He knew the Lord's promises. He knew the Lord's past blessings and protection. And he even knew of the Lord's presence because he had seen, you know, the two hosts of the uh, angels. Yet he was still not fully surrendered in his faith that the Lord would work things out for him. So he fretted and he worried and he was greatly distressed about the approach of Esau. You see, like us, he trusted the Lord in part, but in the other part, he didn't. And so he had sent messengers ahead and he had sent presents in his attempt to appease his brother in his own way and doing things, you know, on his schedule. Well, when Jacob could do nothing but cling to the Lord, and when he clung with all of the fervency of a man of great faith, that is the event for which he is, is commended in the scripture. And that's in Hosea 12.4, by the way. Do you understand? He's not commended for wrestling with the Lord. Okay, do you have that? He is commended for clinging to the Lord. Jacob had to be brought to the end of himself, to the end of his own resources. Even though he had acknowledged in his prayer to God, you know, his own unworthiness. Remember when he said that? And that was so wonderful to hear Jacob say how unworthy he was to receive the Lord's mercies and the Lord's kindnesses and all the Lord's covenant truths that were passed down to him. Even though he acknowledged all that, yet... Jacob still had not come to the end of his own resourcefulness. He was still, while he was wrestling, he was still the heel grabber, the lentil stew cooker, the goat skin covered deceiver, the rod using breeder, and the gift sending brother. Yet Jacob was a believer. You know, we know that. His prayer alone proves that he was a believer. Really, Jacob was no different than we are. He, he was saved because he believed in God. I don't believe he got saved this night of the wrestling match. Um, I believe he was even saved before the, the latter dream. And we, we talked about that before. Um, he, he was saved, I think, as a child, you know, growing up in the home of Isaac. 
But uh, he was saved. He believed in God and he believed in God's promised redeemer. I mean, that's what it takes to be saved, right? And he he believed in that. There's no doubt about it. He really wanted to be in the line that would uh, bring the Savior into the world. And he also believed in God's word. However, there still remained in him, just like with us, the old nature, the old flesh, the carnal nature. And he lived in a constant struggle with it because the flesh is unbelieving. And when it is not held in check by faith and by the spirit and by obedience to God's word, the flesh will break forth in all manner of God-dishonoring ways. Have you ever noticed that? I notice it just about every day. The two natures of the believer are very clearly seen in this man named Jacob. Those two natures are exhibited to us, in fact, by his two names. Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, pictures the natural man, you know, the carnal man. And Israel, his new name, which is given in this event, pictures the spiritual man. The night of wrestling, therefore, I don't believe was the night of his salvation, but I do believe it was a turning point in the life of Jacob because he became a broken man, spiritually and physically. He became a man surrendered to the Lord, a man who finally recognized that in his weakness, he became strong because in his brokenness, He became a man surrendered to the Lord. He learned that his blessings came from God's strength and not from his wrestlings. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. As I said before, my mother is as weak as I have ever, ever seen her, that I ever wanted to see her. And yet she is the strongest I have ever seen her spiritually. You know, sometimes the Lord has to do that. Sometimes he has to take away our strength, right? Like he did with Jacob, to really get our attention so that we cling to him. Let's look quickly uh, at the, the wrenched Jacob. I keep putting my outline in the wrong place. Here we go. The wrenched Jacob. I'm not going to get through all of these, so don't worry about it, okay? The wrenched Jacob, verses 25 and 26. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him... That's the Lord there. The he there is the Lord. When he, the Lord, saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is Jacob now, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. That's all Jacob there talking. When the pre-incarnate Christ determined that it was time for a new day in the life of his servant Jacob, he quit wrestling with him. And he simply touched him in the hollow of his thigh, wherever that is. I guess it's up where the ball and socket joint is. And immediately Jacob's hip was dislocated. That touch was the touch of God. And Jacob must have known that truth because no man can merely touch another man's thigh and, you know, pull the hip out of the socket. It didn't say he pulled on him. It just said he touched him. That touch, I believe, occurred simultaneously with both the moment of daybreak, just as the sun is beginning to come up, and also simultaneously with Jacob's realization of... uh, 
of just who it was wrestling with him. Now, of course, the Lord could have ended, you know this, the Lord could have ended that wrestling match much sooner than he did. He is infinitely more powerful than any mere man, as you know, just that simple touch indicates. However, the Lord's long night of wrestling with Jacob gives us an object lesson here in regard to his patience with us, with man. Long does he bear, you know, he is long-suffering, long does he bear with our fleshly struggles. And I'm so glad that he does, that he is long-suffering with me and with my fleshly struggles. But in the end, he accomplishes his purposes in us. Jacob was a very self-determined man, and it was very difficult for him to admit to being at the end of his own resources. So when the Lord saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, you know, Jacob was not going to surrender on his own. When the Lord saw that, then he brought the resistance to a quick end uh, because he dislocated his hip. And a man cannot wrestle any further when he has a dislocated hip. But we then see the other side of Jacob's strong will. He was a strong-willed person. He was not only a strong-willed man when it came depending on, to, to depending on his own resources, but he was also strong-willed in a positive way. So, you know, if you have a strong-willed child, that doesn't always mean it has to be bad, bad, bad. Because sometimes if you can turn that strong will around to the positive side, it's, it's wonderful. It can be great. He was strong. We saw that Jacob was strong-willed in his desire for the spiritual blessings of God, right? He was. All along, he was very strong-willed in wanting the spiritual blessings of God. He, in fact, he had so desired to be the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant, rather than, you know, letting his brother be the recipient, that he, um, that he had used his own devices in order to make sure that he was the recipient of those blessings. And that same desire for the Lord's blessings upon him was what now caused him, you know, to cry out, even in the pain of a dislocated hip, which I can't imagine, that must have been excruciating. Even still, he cries out and he will not let go until he has received a blessing. So you see how that strong will is put to a positive end here. We do indeed have to admire Jacob's determination, don't we? This was one determined man, helpless and lame. You know, hadn't had any sleep all night, probably hadn't had a good night's rest in quite a while. And in great pain, yet we find him uh, clinging in desperate tenacity to the very one who had crippled him. So he really exhibits great faith here, and this is what he is commended for over in Hosea 12. The picture of broken Jacob hanging onto the divine wrestler is not a sad picture of a loser or a pitiful man or of a weakling. Rather, the picture of, you know, handicapped Jacob clinging to the divine wrestler is a picture of a strong man. Because he has been broken of his self-will and he is now entirely dependent on God's will. When was the Lord Jesus Christ actually his strongest? When he, well, I, I, I guess at the garden or on the cross when he was broken. 
And that's really when he was his strongest. Jacob here is a picture of a man of faith, a man surrendered to God's will. It is the determination of strong faith which will hang helplessly on Christ, knowing that he is the support and he is the comfort and he is the rock for the one who clings to him. You know, Jacob's walk would never be the same again. He would always walk with a distinct limp. The rest of his life, he would limp, which would be good, really, because it would constantly remind him of the night that the Lord touched him. And he learned that he could not overcome any of life's issues by his own strength. The limp would remind him that his strength came in clinging to the Lord's strength. And we need to remember that too. And I need to remember that. Well, I knew I wouldn't get through the lesson, but he does get renamed in verses 27 and 28. His new name becomes Israel, meaning the... It can either mean the ruler... um, of God or the prince of God or the warrior of God or it can also mean that God rules and God fights for those who belong to him like God rules and God fights for Jacob it can mean either one but either way it was a great improvement for Jacob whose name had meant deceiver and you'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that when Jacob is acting like the old Jacob Speaking, I guess we could talk about the nation of Israel. When they're acting like, you know, in their own self-determination and doing things their way, they are referred to as Jacob. The nation of Israel is referred to as Jacob when she's acting in her own flesh. But when she is being obedient and clinging to the Lord, she is referred to as Israel. You'll notice that when you study the Old Testament.